happened without prayer. These kind of things don't come to pass unless the gates of hell are busted down and the captives can be set free. So thank you for your prayers. And speaking of prayer, I guess that we need to get into the Word of God, right? And learn about how to pray through the tabernacle. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Psalm 119. And let's stand in honor of God's Word to prepare our hearts to receive from God's Word. Psalm 119. And we're going to start at verse 153. Are you there? I'm not. (laughs) Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to... Your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see treacherous and I am disgusted. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entry of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself through your word. We give you praise for this supernatural book that was put together on three different continents and four different languages, written by so many authors, and yet it has one continuous message. Salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning that there would be a great manifestation of your Spirit as we study this book. And I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed and conformed to your Word, to the likeness of your Son. The words that are spoken here are truth. Guide us and lead us in your truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, you may be seated. All right, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we're going to bend, where we're going to bend. Yeah, we'll bend. Um, That's where we're going to begin, but that's not where we're going to end. We're going to be all over the place. What you see above me is a picture of a tall ship. It has three masts, 
And if you see the foremast, that's the, the mast that is nearest the bow, or bow, excuse the bow. I'm going to make up a few words as we go along. Just want you to know. They are sort of uh, squared off sheets off the mainsails or off the, the mast. This is called a bark or a barkentine ship. In 1861, a ship very much like the one you see up in the slide called the Harriet Jackson was sailing north uh, of um, Portland, Maine, picking up a uh, cargo to take to Cuba to sell. And they hit a snow squall. You know what a snow squall is? It's like a blasting shot of ice and snow with gale force winds. And it gets so bad that you, can, you can't see two or three feet in front of you. So to protect the ship, the captain tried to head inshore to find a port to, to ride out the storm. And of course, as they head to the coast, they're looking for a lighthouse. Thank you. They're looking for a light. They're near Portland, Maine. They know that. And they're looking for what's called the bug light. The bug light, if you look it up on the internet, you find out that it is a stubby little lighthouse. Okay. You've seen the lighthouses and the nice pictures. They're tall, you know. But this is a stubby little short one. But they knew they were near there. So they have the crew, the entire crew, go to the bow of the ship, and they're straining to see through this snow squall to find a light, to find the bug light, right? Well, one, one sailor says, I see it, three points off the port bow. There it is, um, the bug light. So they head into it and immediately slam into a seawall. And the ship, uh, the ship eventually just goes down. Now, the ship, nobody was killed. It could have been. They could have all been killed. But they, what they thought was the bug light was not the bug light. What they saw was a lantern that had been put in the window of a widow's house who put it, that lantern in the window so that her son, who was downtown, would find his way back home. Okay, so they, they followed the wrong light, and it almost cost every sailor on that boat their life. I know you get the analogy. Following the wrong light in this lifetime can not only cost you your life, but it would cost you your soul. Jesus is the true light, and we're going to discover that today. And he's come into the world, according to John 1.4, that in him was life, and life was the light of men. In our journey through the tabernacle, learning how to have intimate fellowship with God, learning how to pray effectively, um, we are going to see now how the golden lampstand represents the true light of the world. So let's review real quick. Um, we enter the courtyard through a single gate with thanksgiving and praise, according to Psalm 104. Thanking him for what he has done for you, praising him for who he is. 
We come next to the bronze altar of sacrifice where we confess our sins. We confess we're forgiven, 1 John 1, 9. We forgive others, Matthew 18, 35. And where we commit ourselves to doing his will, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then we come to the laver where we're washed in the water of the word. You, this is all familiar to you guys, right? Okay, Because next week I expect you to be quoting it with me, all right? According to Ephesians 5.25, we're washed with the water of the word. Our prayers are cleansed and purified through the word, and we bathe all of our prayer through the word. And then we enter in the tent of meeting, the section called the holy place. And here, we're going to spend some time ministering in prayer. And the first thing we see is the table of showbread to the right, which is on the north side of the tent. We remember that Jesus is the bread of life. He said so in John 6.35. And he taught us to pray in Matthew 6.11, Father, give us this day, our daily bread. So we pray for our needs. Now, because we've committed ourselves as living sacrifices at that altar of sacrifice, we're committed to blessing others. And as we learned last week, like measles, you can't. Give them if you ain't got them, right? So we seek blessings that we might bless. And now we turn to the other side of the tent, the southern part of the tent, and we see a golden lampstand or golden menorah designed something like uh, the one in the picture above. Let's look at the structure. Look at verse 31 in chapter 25. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. Now drop down to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. And it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Speaking of Mount Sinai, which is where they're at. This hammered piece of pure gold is 75 pounds. We're told that in another section. Do you know how much that's worth in today's economy? $173,000. 75 pounds of pure gold. Uh, Notice that there are no specific dimensions given, but they do make it after the pattern that was shown to Moses on Mount Sinai has one middle shaft with three branches coming out each side for a total of seven places for lamps. It's a lamp stand. And what do you put on stands? Put the lamps on the stamps. Now, it could be that they, they hammered the lamps on the stands. In other words, they were attached to it and not just placed on it. We don't know. But notice verse 40 says, See to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Now, that word pattern means an architect's model, all right? Why is that important? Because in Hebrews 8.5, it tells us that it's a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. When we get to heaven, we will see the real deal. 
there will be a menorah there. There will be a pure gold menorah. So whatever dimensions that he gave to Moses that are not copied in Scripture, that's how they made it exactly. A scale model of the area around God's throne in heaven. How awesome will it be to see that? You're going to recognize it. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Just like those of us who went to Israel, we're going reading the Bible, and we go, oh, yeah, I, I saw that. I saw that. All right, let's look at the symbolism. Um, for that, we're going to go to Isaiah 42. All right, Isaiah 42. Now, according to www.matso.com, that's the name of the, <laughs> of the web address, uh, in an article entitled The History and Meaning of the Menorah, they write, the light of the menorah symbolizes an eternal flame. It has been said that the menorah is a symbol of the nation of Israel and its mission to be a light unto the nations, Isaiah 42, 6. Well, look at what it says in verse 6 in Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, they would say that the you here, and in your Bible, is it capitalized Y? Notice? Yeah. Well, they would say that it's speaking of the house of Jacob or Israel. They are the covenant, are the ones that are given as a light to the Gentiles. But the New Testament tells us that it's actually who? That's right. The universal right answer, guys. Come on, say it. Jesus, right. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. You know, remember Luke? I'm your father, son of Darth Vader, right? <laughs> Friend of Han Solo and Chewbacca. Simeon, an elderly gentleman, is at the temple when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to be dedicated. And it says in verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. That means the Spirit of God led Simeon there at that place at that time. Okay. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, I'm, I'm sure that might have been an awkward moment, this strange old guy walking over and just taking a kid. You know, um, yesterday, uh, I, a year ago, I went to the Foster Festival, and I had kids running up and hugging me. Yesterday, I got a kid to cry. <laughs> yeah, um, so he kind of got freaked out when I got close to him. So you can imagine the parents might have thought it was a little weird, this old guy coming up and taking. But I, I identify with Simeon. I, I'm like him. He took, him up, he took him up in his arms, verse 28, and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for before the face of all peoples. Look at verse 32. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So you see... Here he's quoting Isaiah 42. 
And he's identifying Jesus as that light of the world. Now, Jesus, we have him saying as much himself. Turn to John 8. Look at verse 12. John 8, verse 12. He says, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Now, the occasion here is that, according to John 7, it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the location of him saying this is in the temple near the treasury. Um, I don't know. I walked up on the Temple Mount when we were there. And I don't know. I may have walked right through where this may have been. I don't know. But I did get to go to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall and pray for the peace of Israel. But they're in the temple near the treasury, which is in the woman's court. Well, why is that significant? Because there would have been four large lamps in the temple court of women. And they were lit in the evening, and exuberant celebration would take place under their light with people dancing and holding burning torches in their hands while singing songs and praises. And there would even be a Levitical orchestra playing there. And that's when Jesus took the opportunity to openly declare, I am the light of the world. All right, that's the backdrop. And then he says, notice in verse 12, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, now just an aside here. This is for free. I won't charge you for this one. The word follows It conveys uh, the idea of someone who gives himself completely to the person he's following. No half-hearted following of Jesus. Matter of fact, in Revelation, he says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold, but your lukewarmness, it makes me sick. Okay? So, going back now to our text, when he said, I am the light of the world, he's speaking literally and he's also speaking metaphorically. In Scripture, light and darkness are very familiar symbols. Intellectually, light refers to truth. Uh, In this case, absolute biblical truth that applies to everybody, every place, at all time. Darkness refers to error or falsehood, false light, like the one that Harriet Jackson saw and ended up being shipwrecked. Morally, light refers to holiness or purity, while darkness refers to sin or wrongdoing. Jesus is the true light, holy, pure, and eternal. Turn to first, or sorry, not, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4, here's the one you want to underline. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let me paraphrase those two verses. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. 
that light shines in the darkness of this world, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. You see that? To bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Guys, this is us. Not the TV show, okay? This is us. We, like John, are sent to bear witness of the light. Um, a few weeks ago, I did a I, I said that we are to be mooning for God. And, and some of you, you know, you see the little play on words there. Uh, meaning that like the moon reflects the sun, so we reflect the sun, Jesus Christ. We are little lights where he is the, the sun, the true light. Verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So John himself was not the light. He's simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives the light to everyone, was Jesus, the creator of the world, the light of the world. Which is symbolized by what in the tabernacle? The menorah, the light of the world. And we, like John, are reflecting lights, reflecting the true light of the world to bear witness of him. Now go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, look at verse 14. And here... You know, this is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus preaching to the crowds. And he says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. The golden lamp stand in the... Uh, tabernacle in the holy place had seven little stands where they would put the lights on and that's the only light that you had in that place the place was covered it was totally covered with animal skins and um, tap not tapestries were linen coverings and it was dark inside unless you opened the flap on the outside to let some light in the priests did their work with only the light of that candelabra or that um, menorah inside so in the same way let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father so being the light of the world isn't simply talking the talk it's walking the walk it isn't simply going to people and say hey dude you got to turn or you're going to burn okay it's not saying jesus is lord and running off it's your good deeds that gives you street cred. It gives you credibility with those who, who hear you. Our light shines because good deeds done in the name of Jesus. In other words, people should know you're a Christian, but not just by your words, but by your actions. A godly life testifies convincingly to the saving power, and it glorifies the saving power of God, and it glorifies him. That's John MacArthur. Had a young woman in my marriage and family class at Valley, and she just didn't get it. She was a sweet girl. 
and, and she was kind and she was good. Uh, she did everything morally right. And, and everybody at school who were all Christians knew she was a Christian. But at her work, she worked with people who were not Christians. And she told of her witness to them was just by being a good worker. I'm a good worker, and I do good things. I said, well, do they know you're a Christian? She goes, well, I don't know. Well, then what good is your good works? If you're not telling them, but at least you have the actions. But, you know, most of us would do the good things, but never get into that discussion. Because you've got a good reputation. They like you, and you don't want them to start hating you. You don't want them to start thinking less of you because, well, you're one of those. You see what I'm saying? A godly life is a goodly life. And remember, according to Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. All right. All right, let's put some shoe leather on this. You know what it means when I say shoe leather, right? Let's make some application. What's this got to do with prayer? Well, the golden lampstand represents the light of the world. In Revelation 1, which is where we're going next, go ahead and turn to Revelation. You see Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands representing the church. Look at Revelation 1.10. And I want you to bear with me. I'm going to make a point before this is all over. And I don't want to lose you on the way. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God, excuse me, the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Again, he's talking to us. The church is not a building. It's a group of people. It's a group made up of individuals. Collectively, we are the church, all of us together. And whether you know this or not, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but we've been given a commission. Matthew 28, turn there, please. Matthew 28, the first gospel to see what our marching orders are or what our main objective is in being a member of the church, of being one of his disciples. He says in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, maybe on the surface that doesn't sound like much, but when you get into it, it's a very daunting commission. It's pretty straightforward. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. But before they can be a disciple, they've got to be a believer. 
They must be born again. They must convert. And that's where it gets sticky. Because that's where you've got to bust through the gates of hell. And they're not going to keep you from busting those gates open. Because remember what Jesus said to Peter. That upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. But that doesn't mean it's not without challenges. Serious challenges. I don't know if you've seen the movie that's been out recently, 1917. Anybody seen that? Excellent movie. Well done. I, mean, I would love to get into the details of the art of movie making. That was a movie that was shot with just one camera. It was never um, edited to where you got one shot, then it cuts to another shot and cuts to another shot. It's just one single camera, which was pretty amazing. But I'm sorry, I'm getting away from my point. During World War I, there were two British soldiers, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake, and they received a daunting commission orders. In a race against time, they had to cross over into enemy territory. And you know what's in enemy territory? Enemies. Exactly. Enemies that have guns and have orders to shoot you. Okay? Just saying. Just so you know. They were there to get a, they were to go through there to get a message to a Colonel McKenzie that he is walking into an ambush that's going to potentially cost the lives of 1,600 men. And to make it even more challenging and include Lance Corporal Blake's own brother. Okay, so the whole movie is about that, about them trying to get there in time before they walk into this ambush. That's the church, guys. We are in a race against time. The time is getting shorter and shorter for Jesus' return. I know you don't believe that, but it's true. You know, Randy and I were talking yesterday and throwing back messages. Um, there's a, an article, I'll bring it to you maybe next week, about World War III starting with Iran and Russia joining military forces. Um, to Well, okay, see, now I'm getting off on another one. We're in a race against time. We live in enemy's territory, fighting against spiritual forces. And we're charged to deliver a message that Jesus is the light. And that those souls who are following a false light are walking into an ambush. This message could save billions of souls. It certainly saved about 30 or 40 yesterday. If we're going to be successful and effective, and this is where, this, this is what this has to do with prayer. If we're going to break through the enemy's lines, storm the gates of hell that have no chance of holding us back, we need prayer. Much of it, fervent, effectual, importunate. Remember that word? Importunate, annoying prayer. Or else, we're going to hit the gates of hell and just bounce back. Do we have that gif? Right? Exactly. Like that. You can go to the next one. That's just going to keep doing that over and over and over again. 
As we pray for the missionaries, as we pray for the gospel getting out, as we pray for the light of the world to enlighten souls of men, as we pray for those people who are doing the work of the ministry with that specific purpose, we need to pray for their physical needs, for their emotional needs, for their financial needs, for their material needs. All of those things are legitimate prayers, and we know how to pray that. But there is one prayer that I think is even more important than all of that. Something that I covet for our own church. And that's the prayer of a fuller manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the workers who are sent out to do the work of the ministry. Andrew Murray, if you guys were a part of that 29 days of prayer, you read a lot of Andrew Murray. And if you're going to be a part of the 31 days of waiting on God, which I hope you are, you're going to read more Andrew Murray. I found it pretty inspiring myself. It really, really helped me and encouraged me in my walk. Well, you might remember a couple of these quotes. Uh, In praying for the church, he quotes... Ephesians 3.16. Remember, what do we do when we pray? We always bathe our prayers in the Word of God, right? We filter everything through the Word of God. Ephesians 3.14 and 16, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that means he's taking the posture of prayer. That's right. That he would grant you, here's the request, according to the riches of his glory, that's the praise and the glory of God, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened with might through his spirit. This is what he writes in the school of prayer. Pray for the fuller manifestation of the grace and energy of the blessed spirit of God in the removal of all that is contrary to God's revealed will. Now, I would have said, let's just pray and power and boldness, you know. Let's go to Encanto Park and just speak the words and watch all these kids fall to their knees and say, what must we do to be saved? But that's not what he's praying. He's praying that for these ministers, for those who are being the lights of the world, following the commission, that from them, everything contrary to God's revealed will is removed that we grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. A grieved spirit is a spirit that is quenched. It cannot work fully and properly through the vessel that's trying to allow him to work through them. That he may work in mightier power in the church for the exaltation of Christ and the blessing of souls. Now further in that series, he prays for the fuller manifestation of the Holy Spirit, on ministers, um, on our mission work, on our missionaries, on God's spirit in our children's church and our Sunday school teachers, and of course to pray for the salvation of children. This is our greatest lack, and this is our greatest need. The Holy Spirit's power and a fuller manifestation of his grace and energy. Andrew Murray goes on to write, God has one promise to and through his exalted Son. Our Lord has one gift to his church. The church has one need, and all prayer unites in the one petition, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Make it your one prayer. All right? Are you getting it? I pray so. Um, I, I have a favor to ask of you. Would you be willing to pray for Calvary Chapel Arrowhead? And he said, well, I do. Would you please be importunate about it? Would you annoy God about it? Turn to Isaiah 62. I'm going to close with this so we can have communion together. Isaiah 62, 6. Isaiah 62, 6. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. These watchmen... These who make mention of the Lord are not to keep silent and give him no rest. Who's the him? Our God, our Father. That's importunity, importunity, however you want to pronounce it. That's being annoying, okay? That's being annoying. Until he does what? Makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Would you be willing to pray for a fuller manifestation of grace and energy of the Holy Spirit in our church? I know Carly could use some right now. Would you pray that God would remove anything that's contrary to his will? Would you pray that he would work in mightier power so that Christ would be exalted, souls would be blessed, and souls would be saved? Good. I see some people nodding. I trust you will do it. And now I take you to it. I'll quote this verse. You don't have to turn to it. First John 5. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we have the thing which we've asked. Jesus said, up till now you've not asked anything in my name. Ask in my name and it will be given to you. I have chosen you, you have not chosen me. I have ordained you that you should go forth and bear much fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Those are the promises. That's what he said. Okay, so nag him about it. Nag him about it. And let's see what God does. Could be pretty cool, huh? Could be pretty good. All right, let's stand, please. And gentlemen, if you will... Please pass out the communion.
Jehovah Shaman, the Lord is there, my master Adonai. Elion, God most high, Yahweh, you are the Lord. Jehovah Roy, my shepherd, Megadishkim. Who sanctifies you, Lord, our righteousness, Jehovah shed canoe. Worthy is your name, yeah, yeah. Worthy of all my praise. God who sees you are my banner, Jehovah Nisi, all sufficient one El Shaddai. Jehovah Jireh, you will provide. Rapha, the Lord who heals. Shalom, you are my peace. Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaon, Elohim, the everlasting God, worthy is your name, yeah, worthy of all my Hold in your hands the emblems of the body and the blood of Christ. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. If you remember... When Jesus died on the cross, when his body was broken, when the flesh was rent, so too was the veil in the temple rent, torn, so that you could have access into it. His body was broken so that we could have access into the holiest of holies and fellowship with the God of many names. Those names are meant to meet the things that you very much need. So, let's take this, let's eat this in remembrance that this is his body broken for us. Father, we, we bow our hearts and give you thanks for the body of Jesus that was broken. Thank you that it opened the way that we may enter into your presence. And now we receive this in the name of your Son. Amen. Shall we? Paul went on to write, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper 
saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you remember that there was no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But the Bible tells us that the blood of, of rams and goats and bulls could never take away our sins. So there had to be a new covenant. And that's why Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we bow our hearts before you, knowing that you are here in our midst. And we are remembering you right now. Thanking you for the blood that has forgiven us of our sins. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses for the sin that continues to condemn us to remember that we are cleansed and are always being cleansed by the blood. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any that we need to forgive, that you give us the grace to forgive. So we partake of this now in the name of Jesus Christ, in remembrance of him. Amen. Okay, you ready to get out there? Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you see that fuller manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life as you go out and be a light to the world you live in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing the doxology. <laughs>